When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. It's me and Kit again. Uh, evening, Kit. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you, Chris. How are you? I'm, I'm doing all right. Another fun day at work, smelling of submarine, but yeah, pretty good. <laughs> Probably a little too much. Smelling of submarine is fantastic. Um, but we're not talking about submarines. We're going all the way back to 16th century Japan today, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. Who, who have we got on? Well, we've got uh, Craig Shreve, uh, who is a writer and a novelist. His previous titles have included One Night in Mississippi, and here is to talk about his new book, The African Samurai, The Incredible Story of Yasuki, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yep, it's good. Fantastic. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So this is, because uh, uh, originally I thought the first sort of non-Japanese samurai had been Will Adams, who's a, a local of mine originally, but this uh, Yusuke predates him, doesn't he? Yeah, um, and, and by quite a bit, actually. And so the there, there are some people certainly who dispute uh, whether or not Yasuke was actually a samurai, but he was. Um, th- there's strong evidence to support that um, he was Nobunaga's weapons bearer, uh, which is a, a role that would be you know given to a samurai, and he also was allowed to carry you know the the, the uh, traditional two swords, which was something that by law only samurai could do. So um, you know it's not the kind of thing where you become a samurai and they hand you a certificate and make it official. Um, but uh, the, the evidence uh, is there to support it. And it's generally believed that Yasuke was the first uh, foreign-born individual uh, to be given that honor. Well, as a Japanophile, you've mentioned a, a key word there, which is uh, obviously Oda Nobunaga, which who will come to in a moment. Um, but let's talk a little bit about Sengoku period in general. What was Japan like in the 16th century? Is it you know the classic samurai idea that we all have? Um, some elements of it, yes. It's a, it's actually, it's really interesting. It's a period of great transition, uh, in my mind. So the novel is set towards the end of the Sengoku period, uh, as you reference. Um, and so the Sengoku period, um, is this period of time that runs from, it's generally accepted to run from 1467 to 1615. Uh, and it's marked, uh, by, you know, intense feudal warfare. And so it kind of began, there was a shogunal secession dispute um, that brought some of the major clans into conflict with one another. And then once that was eventually settled, the regional governors never quite uh, returned to the fold, so to speak. They started to style themselves as independent warlords or daimyo and pursuing their own agendas. And so that led the nation into this very violent period that lasted almost 150 years. 
Um, and uh, during that time, the emperor and the shogun remained in place. But for all intents and purposes, the central authority in Japan had collapsed. And so these daimyo were constantly planning campaigns to either expand or defend their territory. And um, I always like to think of the 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 kind of, I, I guess, small people as well, of course. And so the fact that wars are so expensive would have also meant raising taxes in many cases. So it would have been a very burdensome time um, for farmers and merchants and the, the kind of everyday people. And so this period of time, uh, you know, much like any conflict, uh, any period of conflict, it's there's a lot of legendary figures that emerge. It's kind of an age of heroes, but it also would have been a very difficult time for the average citizen. And then to throw into that same mix, uh, you know, at the same time, the Europeans are starting to make inroads. They arrived, I, I believe they arrived in 1543. Uh, Yasuke arrives in Japan in 1579. So not a lot of time there in between. I mean, this so is the, the Portuguese, Europeans, right? Sorry? This is the Portuguese who are arriving. Uh, there were some Dutch as well. Um, so a, a number of Europeans are coming ashore, although probably pretty slow to make inroads, mostly, you know, around the kind of smaller islands and port cities. But they're, you know, beginning to make inroads with religion and trade. And so Japan, having been an island, had been largely protected from any of that kind of outside influence other than relations with Korea and China. So this is something new. This is really kind of like the first exposure to Western ideas um, and, and Western thoughts and practices and that kind of thing. And so in all of these different aspects, really, military strategy, techniques, um, outside relations, this is the beginning of the transition from traditional Japan to modern Japan. And of course, when there's that kind of massive change, there are those who rush to embrace it and those who rush to impose it. So at the latter stages of this period where this story largely takes place, um, there's really this combustible mix of powerful forces, all with differing agendas, um, militarily, culturally, politically, and just you know, so much at stake. And into this comes our hero, Yasuke. What do we know about his early life and how he got to Japan? Uh, not a lot about his early life. Um, and this is where there, there's a fair bit of speculation on my part. Um, the parts of the story that take place in Japan, I you know, try to adhere to the history. But uh, there's not a lot to go on with the, you know, with, with his, his existence prior to that. There are, you know, a few scraps here and there that um, may or may not be reliable. And so there is one document that refers to Yasuke as having been originally from Mozambique. Um, but that document was created by a Jesuit priest um, years after the events uh, of this novel. So there is some uh, reason to uh, be suspicious of it, I guess, uh, and, and suspect whether it's authentic. Um, so there are also convincing theories of him being from Ethiopia or from Sudan. Um, so in the book, I went with Mozambique just because that's the only documented um, location. Um, but we also don't know his original name, which, of course, makes it very difficult for anyone to try to track any of his history prior to uh, his arrival in Japan. So it is pretty certain that he uh, would have had some military training, uh, some experience. Um, and it is also a little bit uncertain how he came into Alessandro Valignano's service. So Alessandro Valignano is the uh, this high ranking Italian uh, missionary. Uh, he actually was visitor to the Andes, Indies, which made him the uh, highest ranking Jesuit 
uh, in the area. And that's the individual who brought Yasuke to Japan uh, in 1579. And so in the book, I have them meeting in Portugal, uh, but it's also possible that they met in India while uh, Valignano was en route. So there was a lot of uncertainty about uh, Yasuke's early life. And um, I do talk about this a little bit in the author's note, how history is really reliant on the written word. Um, it's almost entirely composed of, of written history. And so cultures that practice written history have kind of an outsized say in how things uh, are remembered, whereas cultures that practice oral history um, are typically represented by observations that are made about them. And so this is an example where we don't have anything from Yasuke in his own words. Um, and so we have to kind of rely on when he pops up in other people's records. And speaking of records, one person that we do know a lot about, uh, in fact, probably the most of anyone in this pe particular period, is the person who he comes to serve, who is Oda Nobunaga. And it's probably important to, to address just how important this guy is to Japanese history. Yeah, I mean, you certainly can make the argument that he's, you know, one of or possibly the most important person in Japanese history. Um, you can't talk about Japanese history without hearing about the three great unifiers being, you know, Oda Nobunaga, uh, Toriyotomi Hideyoshi, and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Uh, and so Nobunaga obviously being the first of those three, um, you know, he is an unavoidable figure in Japanese history and one of the most uh, significant figures. Uh, actually, to be honest, was a little bit intimidating to write about um, because you certainly don't want to get anything wrong. And as well, um, you know, one of the things that became very clear to me as I was reading about Nobunaga is that the idea of, you know, an impartial history is a fairly recent concept. Um, so when you go back this far, it's very clear that some of the people who are writing about him are supporters and some of the people who are writing about him um, have a clear bone to pick with him. So the accounts of Nobunaga and his actions and his motivations vary wildly. And you really kind of have to dig into who's writing about him and why to get to the bottom of kind of what's true. Um, but Nobunaga certainly, you know, at the time of these events, he's the most powerful man in Japan. Um, he kind of emerges during the later stages of the Sengoku period as the most successful of these, these daimyo. And that in itself is an, an extremely unlikely story, uh, because he started out as a very lightly respected, uh, lord from a, from a minor province, so much so that he was nicknamed the Fool of Awari, um, which is, very clearly not a, a very good nickname, but even more so when you think of some of his contemporaries, like uh, you know, Takeda Shingen was referred to as the Tiger of Kai. Um, uh, Uesegi Kenshin was the Dragon of Echigo. So those are obviously much cooler nicknames um, yeah. than the Fool of Awari. Uh, so he was, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a highly dismissive title, and it tells you that he was not someone who great things were expected of when he was uh, kind of a young man. Um, but but he does rise to the top, um, and so that makes him a very attractive um, individual for the Jesuits to uh, gain favor with. Um, because you know, if you it, the Jesuits felt that if they could convert Nobunaga, then that would just help them convert the the greatest number of Japanese and establish themselves as um, the the primary religion in the country. Um, and so there is one interesting fact, uh, you know, Nobunaga was largely accommodating of the Jesuits in their mission, 
but he did refuse to get baptized despite the fact that they haggled him fairly constantly to do so. And so that leads me to believe that he was viewing them more as a political tool than having any kind of real interest in their religion. Um, and that does make sense because he does have a history of of uh, conflict with the Buddhist and, and Shinto uh, uh, monks who are not the kind of Suin monks that you might think they are. They are a pretty powerful military and political force. And so it, it's pretty likely, I think, that Nobunaga supported the Jesuits in the spread of Christianity as kind of a blunt against the power and authority of the, of the monks. Whereas the Jesuits were kind of like, uh, in the Americas, they were kind of like the first step to colonization, you know, bringing Christianity, convert the locals, and then bring in the rest of the, bring in the rest of the Europeans. Yeah, it's very much a kind of a lay the groundwork, um, you know, set, set the table for Western ideas to be kind of accepted and incorporated in society. And, and then, um, you know, whether it's a plan that, uh, you know, phase two and phase three come to pass, it certainly has been the pattern, I guess, wherever the Jesuits go, that um, once they, um, you know, kind of establish a foothold for Western beliefs and Western ideas that, uh, you know, that opens the door to a greater level of control from Western powers. But, um, so. When he arrives, Yesuke becomes quite a celebrity, doesn't he, amongst the uh, the Japanese people? Yeah, and and he he certainly would be recognizable. <laughs> um, he was um, so in the port cities of Japan at the time. You know, again, people would have seen um, Africans and Europeans um, working on the docks, on the trade ships, etc. But in central Japan, many people had never seen an African before when Yasuke arrived. Um, so he was a, a sensation um, when he when he arrived in Kyoto. Um, and so much so that I mean, so many people came out into the streets uh, to see him that there was a riot. Uh, and there were, I believe, three people that were reported as being crushed to death. So that scene is, you know, based off, you know, a, a historical event. Um, people. It, it, so he was described in one document as being six foot two which doesn't seem very tall maybe today, but the, I looked at the average height of the Japanese male in the uh, uh, you know, 16th century in the early parts, and, and it was right around five foot one. So Yasuke would have been the equivalent of seeing a seven footer, but a seven footer with a skin color that you've never seen before in your life. So he would have been wholly alien to them. Um, and you can kind of tell that by how they uh, initially reacted. Um, and so when he was brought before Nobunaga, that, that, that part also comes from, from historical records is that, um, Nobunaga was so suspicious of his skin color and that it was some type of prank that was being played on him that he ordered him to take his shirt off and that he be scrubbed, um, thinking that it was going to wash off. So, uh, the, the two men probably didn't go off to the, uh, the best of starts, um, but uh, you know, Yasuke uh, again is described as being six two, as having the strength of ten men, uh, as being very dark skinned, uh, and then other than that, there's not a lot of uh, physical description. Um, but he did speak a little bit of Japanese as well, uh, almost certainly not as much as I've portrayed in the book, for, just for purposes of <laughs> making communication easier. But he did speak enough that he could have conversations, uh, and so. Uh, it is recorded that he spoke with Nobunaga often. Um, sometimes they dined alone. Um, 
And so that that makes sense with what we know of Nobunaga because he is a very curious person and he would have loved to know as much as he could about Yasuke's experiences uh, and places he'd seen. It sounds fascinating. I've got to ask from an author's perspective, though, because you've spoken a few times about sort of tackling this particular subject. How did you find sort of diving into the past? And particularly as an author, as as I'm sure you know, James Clavell's Shogun is such a huge book, very similar period. How did you approach going about this in a novel way with your own story? So I started reading uh, James Clavell's book and I stopped. Um, and I'll have to kind of go back and pick it up now because I was really enjoying it, actually. But, yeah, I, I, you know, you want to get a little bit of flavor, but you don't want to get too much flavor. Um, and so there's a number, number of things as far as I guess I'll start with. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just diving into the period, um, one thing I found really helpful aesthetically is um akira kurosawa films um so the legendary japanese filmmaker his his sets are beautiful uh his, his cinematography is fantastic so there were some really good details that i was able to pick up from just watching those films and like you know pause and study the background and see what the sets are like so that was a really good resource and then you know books internet um there are some really good youtube uh channels and podcasts and etc just whatever i could get my hands on I also made use of, there's a Facebook group that does feudal miniature Japanese war games. So they were really useful for some of the like really precise, specific details because they would get into things that, you know, none of the books or anything were interested in, right? So I am a war gamer, so I can say we oh, okay. are hyper nerds. Like the detail <laughs> yes. that we go into on the period is kind of obsessive. Okay, well, that's great. So some of your compatriots were, were very helpful then. Um, although they also maybe... Uh, it's funny that you put a question out to them. You can spark some pretty intense arguments as well. So I'm sure that you're <laughs> familiar with that. Um, but yeah, so and then as well, just approaching the period, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess you start big and work towards small. So, you know, just studying the history first and foremost and understanding. And the interesting thing, again, with Japan being an island, the history is fairly uninterrupted, I think, more so than other imperial histories. And so... Things that happened in the 12th century have a direct impact on things of the 16th century. So understanding how things got the way they were and et cetera, you know, you kind of have to have. I didn't go into detail, of course, of studying 11th and 12th century history, but I had to have a base of the kind of whole course of events that uh, led up to this period. Um, and then, um, you know, you, you, of course, you want to get the history right. You want to get the people as right as possible. But at the same time. Um, I was very conscious of the fact that this was a very violent period, and I didn't want to shy away from that because even the good guys have a lot of blood on their hands. Um, you know, kind of nobody escapes, um, have to make harsh decisions and, and do some things that we in the modern day would look at as being highly distasteful. So I didn't want to kind of sugarcoat that and, and make it seem black and white. I, I did want to show that um, this is a time where people had to do hard things. Yeah. What 
I'm trying to word this very carefully, but what? How did you first find out about the story about Yasuke, and what what kind of in- inspired you to write about him? Yeah, so the first I heard of him was from uh, just a very short YouTube video. Um, I don't remember exactly kind of where and how I came across it. I probably just let a playlist play on a bit too long. Um, but uh, my initial introduction to him was very, uh, as I said, it was a brief video. It didn't have a lot of details. It was just talking about this East African man who was the first foreign-born samurai. Um, and my initial reaction to it was that I didn't believe it. Uh, because not that I didn't think it was possible, but I, I didn't think it was possible that I would have never heard about this. And so I initially started looking into it, the expectation I was going to find that it was a a hoax or maybe like a half-truth or something along those lines. And instead, uh, as I look into it, I find out that it's it's a far more incredible story than what I would have imagined because, you know, as we talked about, it's, it's not simply some minor lord that elevated into samurai. It was, you know, one of the most important figures in Japanese history. Uh, and so there was a lot... Uh, there was a lot there to dig into, but as far as what attracted me, I guess initially what attracted me, and became very apparent right away that Yasuke was a, a highly adaptable uh, individual because there were several times during the course of his life where his circumstances changed uh, drastically and, and quite suddenly, and yet each time he he seems to find a way to prove his value and kind of put himself into a position uh, where he can kind of protect himself somewhat or, or kind of earn favor from someone who can protect him. So he, he has a tendency to kind of like beat expectations um, regardless of the situation. And so that was kind of what initially drew me in. And then as I got into kind of the studying the broader context of things, I was really excited about the idea of taking you know, what I believe to be a piece of black history and presenting it in the broader context of world history. Um, and so I have, through the course of this, I think over the last few years, become more and more skeptical about the way that we divide history up into separate categories and culture by culture. Um, and I think that maybe why Yasuke's story is not more broadly known is because it doesn't fit cleanly into any one particular category. And so I think it's maybe kind of fallen through the cracks a little bit. And I think there are other stories that also have done the same, that that connect different cultural histories uh, and that maybe haven't bubbled up <laughs> to the appropriate level of attention because they don't fit into one of these categories. Uh, and so I'm looking into some of those and I hope to be able to kind of continue with stories along, not along the same vein of, of you know, African and Japanese history, but along the same vein of maybe cultures that you wouldn't normally connect with one another and, and seeing what the connection points actually are. Fantastic. Now, we've mentioned about Yesuke featuring in some major events. Uh, one of the key things is the Honoji incident. So can you tell us what happened to that? Uh, sure, and I will. Uh, I'll just give the spoiler alert first for anybody who doesn't want, you know, four hundred year old spoilers. Um, but uh, yeah, the Honoji incident is is again one of the most famous incidents uh, in, in Japanese history, and that is the kind of culmination here in which uh, Nobunaga is betrayed by one of his generals uh, at Honoji Temple. And so the facts of why he was betrayed are not certain. There are a number of theories. Um, the one that I went with 
in the book is one of the more popular theories as to why um, I'm, I'm going to have to use the name, but this is why Akechi betrayed Nobunaga. So uh, the theory that I present in the book is um, so his he he did give his mother as a hostage um, to the Hitano clan, and then when Nobunaga executed Hatana Hideru, uh, they executed Akechi's mother. Uh, and so there's simple belief that that uh, you know was probably what triggered Akechi to turn. But there are other theories as well. Um, Akechi was a traditionalist and a devout Buddhist, and so it's possible that Nobunaga's earlier raising of a Buddhist temple um, may have kind of set them on opposite paths. There were also beliefs that maybe the imperial court was behind it uh, because of the idea that maybe Nobunaga would not be malleable enough uh, for the emperor to control. And there's even theories that maybe Toyotomi was behind it, urging Akechi to execute this betrayal so that he could then avenge Nobunaga and set himself atop the Oda power structure. So it's not known. There are a number of theories, but regardless of why, Nobunaga was attacked at Honoji Temple uh, and was vastly outnumbered because he was traveling with a, a very light party and well within his own region and not expecting uh, any conflict. So he was, uh, he was not anticipating any need for protection, uh, found himself surrounded by overwhelming forces um, and having no choice but to kind of execute this hopeless last stand. And so I did stray from the truth here uh, on one important area. And I do mention this in the author's note, but in in real life, Yasuke does escape Honoji and makes it to a nearby compound where Nobunaga's eldest son um, was actually holed up. And he went there to kind of warn him about this betrayal. But that compound, unfortunately, was also uh, already under attack. And so um, Yasuke was captured there as opposed to at Honoji. So I, I changed that um, just because I was trying to keep the the cast of characters manageable, uh, and also it is a bit um, anticlimactic. But the West of the Honoji incident plays out largely as uh, as described with, uh, uh, you know, Yasuke was there beside Nobunaga during this kind of final last stand um, against hopeless odds. It really does kind of, you know, the Honoji incident is a really interesting historical what if, because Toyotomi uh, took over in Nobunaga's absence, and he uh, he made some changes that definitely were not in line with um, you know, what we see from Nobunaga. So, for instance, Toyotomi enforced uh, strict class structures and didn't allow movement between classes, whereas Nobunaga, on the other hand, had shown that he was quite progressive in his willingness to ignore class and name and elevate people based on merit. And Yasuke is an obvious example of that, but Toyotomi is actually an example of that as well. Um, because he had come from a peasant family and started as a servant in Nobunaga's house, um, but he proved himself capable as he kept taking on greater and greater responsibilities and ended up being one of uh, Nobunaga's highest ranking vassals. So it's pretty, uh, you could say ironic or you could say hypocritical, I guess, that he would uh, enforce such uh, strict um, class structures when he took over after he had benefited so greatly from um, them not being in place. But that's one example of how greatly these two men differed and how different the country may have been uh, if Nobunaga had survived. Yeah, and Nobunaga had no plans of invading Korea, which Toyotomi I, I went on to do. That as well, and that was um, disastrous. <laughs> so uh, Toyotomi. Yeah. yeah. 
Nobunaga certainly was ambitious, but it doesn't seem like a blunder that he would have made. Do we know what happens to Yasuke after the after the uh, Honoji incident? Um, not we don't know very much. Um, so as I said, he was captured and he was brought before Akechi uh, Mitsuhiri, and uh, it seems that he was you know, berated uh, and told that he was not worthy of death, um, and then was given to the Jesuits, and that's kind of where where he disappears um, for the most part. So there's not a lot to go on after that. Uh, he could have continued on with the Jesuits. Um, he could have joined the service of another daimyo. Um, I don't think that he would have tried to return to Africa at all, if that were possible, um, because I think he'd been away long enough that I don't think he would have um, kind of felt you know, a connection there and felt roots there. So I think it's most likely that he would have stayed in Japan. I think that's where he had been most uh, welcomed and accepted. Um, so it would make sense that he would probably uh, feel comfortable there. Um, and then I have my own personal wish, which I, I want to make clear. There's no shred of evidence <laughs> um, or no reason to believe in this whatsoever. But um, you know, I, I would like to think that you know maybe he went and joined the uh, pirates in Japan. Well, why not? I mean, he, someone yeah. coming all the way from Africa, clearly he knew the sea. He was coming over there from the Portuguese. Well, he certainly would have been welcomed. You know, he he had the skills that they would look for. So, um, if uh, if he wanted to join, I'm sure they would have taken him. <laughs> and the and the good thing about this, as you said, is where we have no facts, you can kind of draw draw your own conclusions, and that's <laughs> that's quite a feasible conclusion. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, if I could have found like one scrap going in that direction, I I, I might have gone there. But uh, yeah. Uh, it's it's open to interpretation, um, and that's kind of the, I guess it's the joy and frustration of historical fiction is um, you kind of find the holes in the story, and you know you wish that you had the answers, but since you don't, you uh, you supply your own, um, and you kind of, you know, you don't get to connect A to B, you have to connect A to F, um, and fill in the B C D E. Um, so, uh, you know, it's always, uh, it's, it's fun to do, um, as a writing exercise and just as a thought exercise as well. Um, but then there's always a part of you that just wishes you had the answers. Absolutely. Um, one final question, uh, which is obviously as a writer, we've mentioned your inspiration, where you first learned the story, but we're talking about a, a samurai potentially from Mozambique, certainly the East coast of Africa. Um, and someone who was very prominent in Japan at the time. Is this story well known in Japan or in Africa? Is he seen as a sort of folklore hero or is there any kind of tradition around him? I didn't get a very good handle on that, to be honest. Um, so he is represented in media in Japan. Um, there are children's books. Um, he's in some video games and, you know, some some television shows and et cetera. So he is known. Um, but then just as I'm, uh, you know, I, as I'm talking to people and asking questions, um, I didn't run into anybody who had heard the story. Um, so that's, you know, pretty small sample size, just talking about, you know, people that I'm in direct contact with while I'm there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was hard to kind of get a sense of how well known he is. Um, yeah, I, but, uh, you know, I hope that, um, you know, maybe we can kind of bring bring him forward through whatever means possible, because um, I know for me, I've talked to people and said that yeah, if I was uh, if 12 year old me had known this story, I would have had his poster on my wall. You know, it would have been 
it would have been a hero to me. Um, but uh, it's unfortunate that I didn't hear about him until much later. I'm I'm well, 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 well past twelve. Uh, I can tell you that. So, um, but um, yeah, he, he and he's also kind of he seems to be represented in. He's a bit of a blank slate. Um, so there are a number of different types of representations of him, and um, I think maybe that's a good thing. I, I, I would encourage, you know, I, I hope that more people write about him or create, um, you know, movies, uh, other material about him. I'd love to see different takes on him and, and have him and see him in different scenarios. I, I just think he's a fascinating character. He absolutely yeah. is. Um, so the book is African Samurai, the incredible story of Yasuki by Craig Shreve. Craig, where can we find you uh, and what are you working on next? Uh, my website would be probably the best place to find me and it's just uh, craigshreve.com. Um, other than that, I'm uh, probably most active on Instagram, I guess, as far as social media, I'm, which I, I believe my social, my Instagram is cgshreve. Um, I am, uh, I'm researching, uh, uh, other stories right now, so I'm not actively writing anything right now, but I'm planning on starting probably December, January ish. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've got, uh, some interesting people that I'm looking at and, uh, uh you know, maybe a couple of years, I'll be back to share another story with you. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, be more than welcome to just get our people can talk to your people. We'll sort something out. We'll do lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I'm always I'm always up for lunch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too. Um, and what we'll try and do is we'll try and get the book on the um, History Hack online bookstore as well, so that with every sale you get a certain amount, you get more money than if it went through a um, popular rainforest named website, which I'm sure they're building. <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And uh, thanks, thanks for coming on and chatting to us today. Oh, no problem. Thank you. It's been fun. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.